Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt and Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. There. <sighs> Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Masterpiece Theater, where this is a masterpiece of engineering and... Smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors. See my smoke? Do we have audio? <laughs> we have audio. Yeah, well, I see winky blinkies over there, so I'm assuming we have audio. So we'll I'm find sure out. I'm sure Somebody will tell us in the chat if we have yes we do okay. we do have audio so darn it they can hear what we're gonna say yes we know what we're gonna say do we ever know what we're going to say <laughs> is that not <laughs> have they not figured out by now most of the time we're just yeah. winging it okay so how you doing i'm doing all right yeah yeah all right i'm uh I'm doing, uh, okay, so I'm doing a couple of things here that are, um, because, there we go, I have to tell this, I have to push the button like I mean it. That's, that's the trick. Push right? the button with conviction. That's right. So, uh, how are you? Aside from the button pushing. I'm actually kind of sore because as part of my my media day job type of thing. I have uh, had the occasion to work for the Skycam crew out mm. at the Chiefs football game. And that's actually the reason why we're doing the episode tonight as opposed to last week uh, because the Chiefs game got rescheduled last week because COVID. And so we had another game yesterday. Right. And a lot of it is picking up and toting and, right, and right. heaving and hoe and, and so I'm a little sore. But other than that, I'm, I, I feel fairly accomplished. We are booking a number of guests for Life from the Bunker, and we've got some stuff going on with uh, walking and rolling. And I can mention that because you and I have talked about this, but we are going to be, in, at, at the very least, we're going to be engineering the walking and rolling costumes uh, virtual party that starts on Friday at 7 o'clock central. They're going to have a live episode every night through the 25th. And they're going to talk about all of the different things that they do providing cosplay costumes for kids with disabilities, mainly in wheelchairs. And on the 25th, they're doing a reveal of the brand new costume right. and we're going to do all of that live and hope that it all works so there is that i'm hoping it works i i don't i don't know if it's going to to do it or not but it it might give it a whirl give it a whirl you know this the bat it may be the batteries in the keyboard because now it's not doing anything oh there it is there we go all right well, it's just taking a while. It's old and slow, I guess. Wouldn't know anything about that. I wouldn't either. So, uh, anyway, speaking of old and slow, Watchmen. 
Killing Joke. It's not slow. Well, it's, it's older. It's definitely older, and it um, its influence has not slowed, for good and for ill. Yeah. And we're talking, of course, about Alan Moore and his writing, and there's some interesting arguments to be made about the effects of that influence, mm-hmm. for good and for ill. Yeah, and and the latest is from Alan Moore himself mm-hmm. because he did an interview with Deadline which is not not your usual thing it's not something that he does a lot of but he's got this new movie out called The Show mm-hmm. and it is the trailer's out now by the way the trailer's out he's doing the interview with Deadline and they're asking him about superhero movies and he has some things to say about superhero movies. He does. Yes, he does. I don't think this is working. Now, in 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 fairness to those who aren't aware of Alan Moore's opinions about superheroes, they have been less than stellar for some time. Right. In fact, he stopped writing superhero comics quite a long time ago. Now, you could argue that the last arc of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was many ways leaning into some of the tropes of the superhero stories. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, a lot of critics of the last couple of arcs of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and I would fall into this camp as well, fair warning, find that they don't hold up as well as when he was doing the historical. Yeah. Once we move into the modern era, Alan Moore, here's a shock to you folks. Alan Moore has opinions, and he's not afraid to share them. He's a, he can be very, very blunt. Uh, he's not shy. And he there's, there's a certain amount of... Okay, I can't speak to what he feels. It comes across. There's a certain amount of bitterness and unhappiness with all pop culture past, like, 1980. I, I don't think you're wrong. And the reason I don't think you're wrong is because... Thank you. Thank you. The reason I don't think you're wrong... Oh, wait. Um, could could you... Do you want to put batteries in this keyboard, or do you want to engineer? Uh, two double A's. I think they're around... Well... We could just stay with this shot. Better request because the because they're in, they're in that pile. A little in. Uh, sorry, folks. Um, around on the other side, in the stack, they should be on top of those totes. Okay. If they're open, I don't know. That one may not be open even. Okay. No, wait, wait. They're not. Um, are there some? Are there some in the closet? I don't know. Um, don't, don't worry about it. We'll just stay on this, we'll just stay on this two shot. I've got five cameras working tonight, and I don't have my keyboard you didn't, you, to control. You know better than to not check, than to not check the batteries ahead of time, sir. It was, it was working. I was testing it over there. How many and it was film working. sets have you been on? How I many productions? Check your batteries ahead of time. I, it was, it was working. I was pushing a button and it worked. 
Of course, I was pushing the button when it was right there. So it's sure, possible sure, that, sure. you know, just the distance here With is enough. With low battery power. Yeah. Yeah, battery power. Yeah. Sci-Fi Snob says, notification came five minutes late. Well, that's YouTube for you. But that's okay. You haven't missed anything yet. Alan Moore has some things to say about superhero movies. He does. Uh, this in Deadline. And I want to go back to what you were talking about here in a minute mm -hmm. because you're not wrong. So Alan Moore... Uh, talking about his new show, The Show. It's a new feature film. But he says in this article, and I'm going to ignore the fact that it appears this article did not have an editor. Because, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to complain for just a moment. Because I can't. Tom Grater writes this article. He may not have edited it, by the way. Uh, I don't think anybody edited it. Because Tom Grater, in the... Th th where is it? And is it the first? This moment of scrolling brought to you by H2O. Yeah, here it is. It's in the third paragraph of mm. this article. And I quote, Moore, who tends to duck the limelight, gave a rare interview to Deadline this week to discuss the show, which has been something of a passion project for the writer. Him and his producers have kept it independent every step of the way. And I'm going to stop there because it would possibly maybe seem to be obvious what made my teeth grind from Mr. Grater. Him and his producers. Him is not the subjective case, Mr. Grater. It is the objective case, and or, it does not belong to the beginning of the sentence. Or miss, or the copy editor whose responsibility was to edit that. Somebody should have Somebody, but let's not, let's not, depending on how these things are structured, sometimes the people who contribute the articles don't actually do the copy editing by the time they get to the I point. No, but still. There you still, go. So in all fairness, <clears throat> yeah, it's bad grammar, um, but uh, it's not a hanging offense. If bad grammar was a hanging offense. Um, Oxford comma. Yeah, I do the Oxford comma. I'm just saying, a lot of people don't. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, so he's doing this, and he's doing this interview with Deadline, and they're going through a Q&A, and they're saying... Uh, you know, dealing with the, the pandemic and the right, lockdown sure. and whatnot. And they're basically saying, you know, here's how we're coping. And uh, and apparently being isolated has given them a chance to reconnect with various different people, at, at least online and through mm -hmm. communication to, you know, a lot of phone calls. Sure. And, and that sort of thing. And so they're asking him about comics. Uh, you retired from comics after finishing The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in 2018, which is what you were talking mm -hmm. about. And he says here, quote, I'm not so interested in comics anymore. I don't want anything to do with them. And it goes on here because of how things went mm -hmm. with things. Uh, he's, he's completely 
done with anything having to do with comics. Sure. He also says that the last superhero movie that he saw was Tim Burton's first Batman movie, mm-hmm. 1989. So, on the one hand, I can understand his sentiment because of how he got treated by DC. Sure. Corporate publishing. And, and, and let's be very, very blunt. He was treated very, very poorly. If you're not familiar with what happened, basically, it, the the short and dirty version is the deal that he made um, with DC was that once, and this was of course the, the model at the time, once Watchmen went out of print, mm-hmm. rights would revert, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Watchmen has never been out of print, right? And this has been a conscious decision on the part of the various administrations of DC Comics. It is shady and dodgy and uncool and not particularly... It's bad business on one hand. The ethics of it. On the other hand, it's incredibly good business because Watchmen continues to be an extremely well-selling property. Yeah. However... In terms of treating your creators fairly, and to some degree, and he's mentioned this before, he had a certain amount of naivete going into that, and it cost him. Mm-hmm. So he's aware that he could have done more to protect his own rights at the time, but he honestly didn't think he had to. Well, and I think I think the other part of that, too, is... I, I get DC's position in that, you know, you have this successful thing mm-hmm. and it's essentially not, it's not really a work for hire, but it ended up kind of being that way because of the deal that they struck. And, uh, I rem- I, I replayed and listened to an interview I did with Dave Gibbons 10 mm-hmm. years ago. Good night. 10 in 2010. Mm-hmm. And it was early in the in the time of this site, and we were talking about they were do, the this is when they were doing the Watchmen motion gra- motion comic, right? And he at the time when we did that interview uh, made it very clear that there were no plans to do any more Watchmen. The story was done; it was a one and done finished. We told the story we were going to tell, mm-hmm. and he said that he didn't know of any plans for DC to do any sequels, right. and. It wouldn't really make any sense to do any sequels because we're done. Mm-hmm. And now you have HBO doing the sequel. You have all of the you know the Beyond Watchmen or whatever the other Watchmen stuff right. was in the comics. Well, and you have you have <clears throat> DC Rebirth, which integrates the Watchmen universe yeah. into the DC universe. And to to a certain extent, I don't think. I'm not sure that Alan Moore has as much solid ground to stand on as he would like because his complaint about stealing other people's properties as you know as you deal with Watchmen Watchmen was essentially stealing the Charlton comics characters well, not really stealing them no, I mean just, it was that was the arrangement it was originally going to be the 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 Charlton characters right. and DC said no let's flip it cuz we want to do something else with these and so instead of blue beetle you've got owlman and instead of the question mm-hmm. you've got rorschach and 
more also with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is using characters he did not create. And it, it, it's splitting hairs, mm. I, I grant. But it's it's splitting hairs in a way that was like, well, you really... I get your complaint, but also, can you complain? Well, I, I would say that it, I think it's a little more than splitting hairs because that was a business deal and the folks with the power in the business deal, mm -hmm. and this is something you see all the time. This is yeah. not limited to DC Comics or any comic thing or it happens all the time to pick, pick, pick a kind of business. This is what happens. Um, if the if the larger entity with the power finds a way to continue making money on the deal, they're going to do it. Yes. This is actually, on a on from their point of view, it makes sense, mm -hmm. and it's it's a good idea. Ticking off one creator or a handful of creators or a handful of small business or whatever industry it is, um, generally speaking, does not have that big of lasting effects. Most of the time. Right. And strictly speaking, in the case of Alan Moore, the actual impact is depending on where you're standing. Well, when you consider Watchmen and The Killing Joke were two of the biggest influential things what changed comics. And yet Alan Moore is the someone who will tell you that he wishes fervently they weren't. Because Killing Joke, he was disavowing the Killing Joke three months after it was printed. Yeah, yeah, and not only that, he he also feels that Watchmen changed the comic industry in ways that he did not want. Hmm. And you can argue very strongly, with a great deal of evidence, that a significant chunk of the bad comics we got in the nineteen nineties were descendants, yeah, mutants or otherwise, of Watchmen, well, the and Dork and Dark Age. Yeah, well, and he goes on in this interview talking about superhero movies, and he says, quote, They have blighted cinema and also blighted culture to a degree. Several years ago, I said I thought it was really worrying sign that hundreds of thousands of adults were queuing up to see characters that were created 50 years ago to entertain 12-year-old boys. That seemed to speak to some kind of longing to escape from the complexities of the modern world, and go back to a nostalgic, remembered childhood that seemed dangerous. It was infantilizing the population. That kind of resonates with something that you and I have talked about before, about the people what in charge of the studios right. holding on to their youth. Mm -hmm. You know, because we've talked about that a number of times, and I'm of the theory that people our age and slightly older are feeling their age and they're wanting to not feel their age. So they go back to those things they enjoyed as kids, mm -hmm. Starsky and Hutch, Dukes of Hazard, all of those things, superhero movies as well. You know, the, the stuff on TV, Wonder Woman, Superman, Batman. And we want to make our own. We want to, these are, we'll, we'll pull out our action figures from the closet and start playing. Right. And, I can mm. see Moore's point to a certain extent. Sure. But the flip side of that is the superhero movies, or movies in general, 
are not necessarily supposed to be the big cultural paradigm shift touchstone. You know, they're not they whether they have influence or not mm -hmm. is secondary. Right. Their primary purpose is to entertain and to provide an escape to what you know for whatever is going on. Sure. So I think his concern is maybe a little bit overdone. Well, there's a couple of things to, to I take away from this. First of all, if you haven't seen a superhero movie since 1989. Yeah. Now, this is not to say that all the superhero films we've gotten in the last decade or so are great works of art, because they're not. Mm. In many cases, they're simply entertaining movies, or they're not entertaining movies. We like them or we don't like them. One of the things that we see with people our age and older who are running these studios and doing this nostalgia thing and bringing back things is that they look at things from only one angle. They look at, so you end up with, as an adult, looking back at something like Starsky and Hutch and going, this is ridiculous, and so you make a comedy. Right. And you don't understand what it was like at the time um, and how it was treated at the time because TV storytelling was different. And you and I look at this in, in, a, in a different way because we look at this in terms of how storytelling works. Well, and, and TV periods. storytelling is different from movie storytelling. Right, but so we all, but, but it also changes. So just like, and we've talked about how surprising it is the superhero bubble has been going on so far. And folks, it's a bubble because tastes change. The, the decades of the Western, the decades of the crime drama, the film noir thriller, the romantic comedy. When was the last time you saw a romantic comedy? Uh, when I made one. So here's the problem with romantic comedies is that they tend to be culturally specific. Now that it's an international market where you're doing, where so much of your sales come in overseas, studios have almost no mm -hmm. desire. Netflix can because, you know, Hallmark, Hallmark right. can because they're targeting specific demographics. But your big studios are really not really going to do them because what's a romantic comedy in Des Moines is not a romantic comedy in Dubai or in Shanghai yeah. or in Moscow or in, you know, El Salvador or Canada. I mean, and, and, and literally, and Canada, we speak the same language. We're geographically attached, but they have, culturally, yeah. culturally there, there are enough differences yeah. that you can actually have a romantic, I mean, it's a hysterically sweet story in the U.S., not play in Vancouver. Well, Sci-Fi Snob says in the chat, I just want to see a fun, entertaining movie. If the only ones that fit the bill are superhero ones, then that's what I'll see. And and again, that goes back to it, it's escape. It's 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 not necessarily uh, uh, popcorn and and mm -hmm. cotton candy type of thing. You get some some good beefy stories sure. that have have a lot there. In terms of, you know, how it entertains you, or makes you think, gives you some ideas to chew on, and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, the superhero stuff is action movies. And, and well, I mean, I'm painting with a broad yeah, brush, yeah, yeah. but it's it is a uh, a form of entertainment that we're not supposed to really have to use a lot of intellectual muscle. Well, it's not a thinking movie. It's not. It's not two thousand one. To some, to some it's degree, not it's true. Interstellar. It's not Contact. 
Well, and he also comes from a point of view where he's seen quite a bit of his work adapted, whether he's watched it or not, mm. <clears throat> and found it to be wanting. And it's not just things like, um, oh, there was issues with, with V for Vendetta, there were issues for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the right. adaptation. But it goes, I mean, you're looking at films like From Hell, which was a very serious exploration of one of the theories of the origin of Jack the Ripper, who mm -hmm. he was and what was going on. It wasn't more going, this is what I believe, it's like this is kind of interesting, here's the research, here's the way we can make this all work. It is a very, very interesting um, story, made into a Johnny Depp vehicle where he played a drug addict version of the character from the story with psychic powers. This is not in any way, shape, or form what From Hell is in the book. Uh, in the book. Um, v for Vendetta. Hugely popular film. I own it. It's very, very entertaining. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible adaptation of the source material. And I am dying for one of these prestige, you know, give, give me the HBO or, or Netflix faithful adaptation because it's it'll be 12 up 10 to 12 episodes of um how, whatever your political viewpoints are because it's a very political book yeah um it's going to challenge you and it's going to make you you know because it's unlike the movie it's an argument for anarchy and it's a very it's a fascinating and it's also brilliant writing and one of the things that Moore was doing for things like watchmen from hell um v for vendetta the early stages, the first three arcs of, of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I would argue, um, was he was telling stories that were about something else. People tend to forget that in Watchmen, the superheroes lost. Yeah. Rorschach has somehow become a... Uh, people have become fans of Rorschach, but he was always written as a terrible human being and a monster. He's not a hero. Um, the, you know, the bad guy won. Everybody... The, the superheroes are mostly incompetent in the course of Watchmen. This isn't to bash any of them. They're written that way. They're written very, very human. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that really impacted folks. Now, they took the takeaway, and this is a death of the author thing. What people take away from your work is versus your intent is always questionable. Sometimes they get it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have a new interpretation that's better than yours, um, worse than yours, whatever it is. But... These big ideas, he was using comics to tell these big idea things. But so much of it was about the state of things as they were. So V for Vendetta was about Margaret Thatcher's England. You know this, if you had any questions, because he tells you in the first issue. <laughs> I'm concerned about the state of my country. Here's where this story came out of. And that's, you know, that's where that came from. Yeah. Watchmen was commenting on the state of, you know, it was it was taking superheroes to certain extremes that they weren't currently in right now. Yeah. Sci-Fi Stop says, he's a truth seeker. He doesn't compromise his principles. And that probably, to some extent, worked against him after a while. Because well, uh... he wanted to tell certain kinds of stories. And he did, mm -hmm. and they had a tremendous influence on the entire industry 
much to his regret. Right. And he's sitting there in this article in Deadline, he's saying, you know, a lot of people point to my work to say comics grew up, and now it's okay for an adult to have a Batman comic on the bus. That wasn't what's supposed to happen. Um, now, his daughter, Leah, mm -hmm. took to Twitter, and this it's is... a great thread, by the way. Yeah, it is. This is back from November of 2019, so right. this has been out for a while, and mm -hmm. it is it is a very good thread. She says the whole... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase and, and scroll through this just a little bit. Oh, oh, oh. Sci-Fi Sound meant, meant Rorschach, not, not more. I misread that. Um, Is a truth seeker? Maybe? I mean, he is looking for the truth about what happened to He's looking comedian. for the truth about what happens, but you also have to bear in mind that Rorschach is mentally ill. He's he's mentally broken. Now, there's reasons for that. In the course of the comic, there's a, he experiences a traumatic event. Right. Um, and it, it's horrific. But he's kind of... Now, he's based, he's, he's based in the comic on the question. But not the question as we know him now. Or there's the various versions of the question. Um, there's been a couple different ones. Most of the modern question era since probably the late 80s on has actually been written really well. Mm. Um, whichever version of the question, um, the Montoya one's actually been pretty good too. Uh, although I'm a fan of the original because it was when yeah. I was a teenager. Big Sage. Um, yeah. And, um, but... He is, um, the, the question at the time, the Ditko question, was um, very much the, sort of the uh, uh, Anne Randian objectivist mm -hmm. kind of uh, thing. And, and give or take your, how you feel about that, but he was a, a non-compromising character. And Rorschach is an extension of that. That, non that ability to not, the inability to compromise has its downside, and Rorschach is the downside. Right. He's hyper-violent. He's... You can't smell a comic, but Rorschach doesn't bathe for <laughs> the entire run. And You can smell a comic when it's printed on newsprint. Well, yeah, but it's, it's not... It's done the, right. You know, he's... And, and quite frankly, I mean, Rorschach... Rorschach is not a hero. No. Rorschach, he's instrumental to... Well, no. He fails to. Yeah. That's the point. That's one of the points of Watchmen. They fail. So, Leo Moore's thread. Um, basically, she says um, he's uh, he's he's clearly never watched any of the rather enjoyable comics comics based movies or experienced any of the joy, support, or inspiration they bring to millions of people. He hasn't sat next to a ten year old girl watching Captain Marvel or Wonder Woman for the first time. The idea. That the man who loved superhero stories so much he gave up his job and plunged recklessly into writing comics, which at that time was insane of him to do, loved them so much he filled every panel and arguably every balloon and caption with that love, loved them so much he tried to make them into something that provoked thought and feelings, that addressed issues, that spoke to people the way superheroes had always spoken to him. That seems crazy to me. I have his collection of Marvel comics dog-eared from reading from love. I've heard so many things about his excitement at finding a stash of secondhand Marvel comics in a junk shop. And, he's, and she's going on about how much he was just mm -hmm. so enamored of, uh, of comics. And then 
it goes on, it says, his problem was that the medium he adored was ruled by corrupt despots, that the people who made that magic were abused, that their contribution was not valued, that it was stolen from them. He already hated that before Watchmen. He already knew Kirby had been shafted. So when it happened to him, and then again, and then again, it wasn't just a business deal gone awry, like people say about the Watchmen deal, or a bit of bad luck, it broke him. The thing he loved most, the thing he poured all his time and energy into for his whole entire life, he couldn't do it anymore. And uh, she goes on about the, the book ABC. Mm -hmm. That was the point where he had decided he was done. But he had an obligation he felt he needed to fulfill. And he did ABC. He did League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And it was finished. Mm -hmm. And he walked away from it. And uh, Liam Moore says, To see him dismissed as crazy old Alan Moore again and again, and people not know what made him that way, to see people dissing him when their job, their industry, their medium was partly built on 40 years of his hard work, I am not heartbroken, just really effing disappointed. And I can understand this sentiment mm -hmm. because I have I have been not to the extreme that this is, but I have been to that edge of disappointment and failure and broken and and uh, what is the point of doing this anymore type mm -hmm. of thing for a number of things, not just not just one work passion thing. But to know that the thing you do, the thing you love, gets essentially corrupted and taken away from you to the point where you just don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. Well, you consider, consider, if you will, the, he, he sits there and does Watchmen, you have that, that whole deal. He does um, a, a Batman book which rippled through the entire industry. Yeah. That he looked back, again, within months, looking at it and going, wait, no, this, this is bad. This is, this, is, this is not where I wanted it to go. And then to watch the industry itself take all the wrong lessons from your work. Mm-hmm. And then when when the the big dollar part of the industry, the movie part of the industry, starts taking your work and adapting it, you've signed the rights. It's all cool. You know how to. You know you, this is how it works. And they get it wrong. Yeah. Well, again and, and again and, and again. That goes. That goes. I've, you know, we keep saying Hollywood always learns the wrong lessons. Put the publishing industry as well. I mean, we're still seeing it. The comics industry right now is on life support. They are in the iron lung, and they are, it doesn't look very good for them. And uh, uh, Sci-Fi Snob points out Moore's problem is working for the mainstream. He should have gone indie. And He did. Well, he did. And the climate now is much different than it was then when he retired. That's, that's for certain. Even two years ago was different. But now... You know, if if Alan Moore were to go on Indiegogo or Kickstarter and say, "I'm going to do a book," he'd he'd blow Todd McFarlane out of the water, maybe. Well, there's a chance of that, but also um, he was talking about he's in that same article. Uh, he was talking about making um, his new show, the show, yeah, yeah, his new show, the show, 
um, and his hope that it's actually going to become a TV series. See, he's moved into he's moved into the movie and TV series. Yeah, there but, you know. but it's his, it's his idea. His idea. I own the creator IP. Own, the, yeah, yeah, and, and he and he says he's more than willing to work with a studio, and he's more than willing to, for them to make money on it. He's all all in power. Great, fantastic. But I'm going to own it. Yeah, and which is which is makes sense to me. But even there, Alan Moore, the Alan Moore, they struggled to get financing. So, um, you know, who knows? But no, he certainly would have a draw. But the question is, would he be telling the stories people want him to tell? Because we have this idea when we think of Alan Moore stories. Mm. And to some degree... Um, he's perpetuated that idea because if you read his non-superhero comics, of which he's written a lot more than he's written superhero comics, they are, um, you know, he's written some some Lovecraftian things. He's written crime things. He's written, you know, these, you know, From Hell is is literally a crime novel. Yeah. Um, and you know, he's but he's always got these stories that make you think. Um, and yet. You look at the, and this is why I'm really kind of excited about the show and I'm concerned. And this is just a personal opinion. You can, you know, fans of Alan Moore, you like him or dislike him. This is just my own personal call. The last couple arcs of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen came across a lot more like a gripe fest. And I hate to say that. Well, it makes sense though, given what he was what he was dealing with Ex- at the time. Except it's not about the comics industry as much as it is about modern pop culture of the last couple of decades. You don't have to like Harry Potter. But the way he wrote the Harry Potter analog mm-hmm. um was mm, I uh, it came across unnecessarily. And this is a series where he's subverted characters before, okay? Right. And so this is this is not unexpected. But it, it, it was very much like, um, let's just burn this concept to the ground. <laughs> and there was a lot of that, unfortunately, in the latter arcs. Now, he was, you know, he was committed to telling his final story. And it's his story. And I, whether how I felt about it or how some other people felt about it, Ultimately, it doesn't matter to the story he's trying to tell. Right. Um, but my takeaway is kind of like, it's like starting off reading Cerebus by Dave Sim. Okay. There's 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 a deep cut back into the past for a comic series that, that a generation probably hasn't even heard of. Yeah. Um, and then watching that go as you read along and watching the creator go off the rails. Because you could literally watch, you can literally track his mental state during the course of the comic. Mm-hmm. And so by the end, you're going, should we call someone? And, and unfortunately, this is a real thing that was happening. He realized the, the creator was deteriorating and, and, and the comic got weird because of it. Or, um, you know, looking at, uh, uh, oh goodness, it's, you, can, you can see this in creators. Sometimes their early work is really, really strong. And as the series goes on, it doesn't hold up the weight. Unfortunately, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen felt like that for me, especially at the end. I think part of it is you have a a somebody who doesn't want to be there anymore, and he's sitting there going, you know, I really, I just, I just want to walk away from it. I just want to be done 
because of all the stuff I've had to deal with behind the scenes, all of the under the hood, inside baseball stuff, just, I, I, and yet I've it, had my fill. And yet at that point, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was completely owned by him. I mean, it wasn't, he had complete creative freedom there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he was telling the story he wanted to tell, and it comes across at the end extremely bitter. And even, even the optimistic, spoiler alert, the optimistic ending for the series is about as optimistic as the Watchmen ending, <laughs> which is a mixed bag, right? Yeah. And that's one of the things that Alan Moore does really, really well. If you get to the end of some of his stories, V for Vendetta is another example what happens next, he doesn't tell you. But what happens next is he breaks the world down and doesn't tell you what happens next. I mean, because the, the end of the world, the, the, the end of the story of Watchmen, mm -hmm. you know, the world has been changed irrevocably. Right. What happens next? Now, and and I think... Much more the HBO series did it better than DC did it with uh, Doomsday Clock, for example. Because sure. Doomsday Clock takes shows you some of what happened next. Um, and though Alan Moore is never going to watch it, um, and probably wouldn't like it anyway, because he doesn't like anything that's adapted uh, of his own, um, I think the, the HBO series did a better job of picking up the themes of mm -hmm. Watchmen than Doomsday Clock did. See, now, the, the one thing that bothers me about uh, the HBO Watchmen, I haven't watched it, but the Harvey Awards were this week. Mm. And they were announced prior to New York Comic Con, and they were handed out to New York Comic Con. Well, sure. New York Virtual Comic Con. Which was a bust. We'll have to talk about that at some point. But the HBO Watchmen got best adaptation. Yeah. And it's not an, it's adaptation. Not an adaptation. It's a sequel. And, and in fact, the, the I don't think anybody, and I, I don't recall, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but none of the people who actually made it were calling it an adaptation. No, nobody was there. Nobody was saying anything because about it's, it being adapted. It's it's and it's it's a sequel in the sense that it's a strange thing. It's almost a sidequel, which is that mutant word that pops up from time to time. Because mm -hmm. um, it's not strictly speaking a sequel. It takes many of the big broad strokes because most of the characters don't come back. Yeah. Um, and the through line, I mean, it's, it's thematically a sequel. And that's why I think, that's why I thought it did a really good job of is it played with the same themes and said, okay, he didn't tell us what happened next. We're going to take those themes and drop them into the now. Right. And I think, I think it did a good job and people agree or disagree on that. And that's fine. I enjoyed the series. I thought it was well done. Um, but I can almost guarantee that. He'd watch it and go, <sighs> not impressed. <laughs> because he just, he, his, I mean, I mean, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the movie, is yeah. a train wreck. It's just a train wreck. It, 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 yeah. And I love V for Vendetta, the movie. It's very entertaining. But it completely ignores so many of the themes. And that's why, I mean. Well, you know, you're dealing with 
the time constraint of being a movie as yeah, opposed but, to... Yeah, but I mean, when you, you when know. you consider that, and just for, if you've not read the, the, the series, originally published as individual issues, um, there's, it's much more a black and white good versus evil thing that happens in the movie. Mm -hmm. And in the comic, it's the shades of gray. V is not a hero. Right. Um, Eve is... You get a glimpse of it in the movie. But what V does to Eve is monstrous. And yet, he's the character you're rooting for. And it's very implied that he's completely insane. And yet he's fighting against something that is worse. And it's just, I mean, there's, there's a Holocaust allegory. There's all these things in there. It's incredibly, and again, it was very political. Yeah. You know, because Margaret Thatcher, it got triggered because Margaret Thatcher said some things and he was just like, what happens if this is, you know, et cetera. And he extrapolates, right? Um, and yeah, how could you come that into an hour and a half, two hour movie? But it's also very much a, here's the good guys, here's the bad guys, and yet that's not what he wrote. It was it's not... It, the bad guys are the worst guys. It's a degree of, of the, the which, which demon are you, or which, which thing with teeth is going to, uh, you know, wound you or rip off the arm. Yeah. And, it, and it ends with, you know, it ends with chaos. Because bringing down governments... You don't wrap it up nicely in a bow with the crowd wearing Guy Fox masks. That's not how the world works. <laughs> and it's so it's a very ambiguous kind of thing. And and yet it's it, I mean, it's beautifully written in some moments of pure poetry and tragedy. Hmm. And just there's an entire issue that has no dialogue. And this was something that at the time you just didn't see. Um, and this was the middle eighties, ladies. Yeah. And it's I want to I want to see that. I want somebody to make that as a short film or or give me give me my 10 12 episode prestige series where you had that entire episode where of just you know no dialogue at all given the impact of his of his work and looking at the last 40 years almost of, <laughs> I know right <sighs> Very nearly, but because Killing Joke was out, what, 86? Oh, something like that. But you look at the influence of not just Alan Moore's work with Watchmen and Killing Joke and, and Swamp Thing and, and, and that. Oh, yeah, we haven't, we haven't even talked about but then you also whatever have, happened to the world of Man of Tomorrow or Swamp yeah, Thing. or You also have Frank Miller doing The Dark Knight Returns. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, dark and gritty is the thing. Well, and, and you can roll in, roll in Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Yeah. You know, roll in some of those other things where not only was dark and gritty the thing, but it was comic books are now, comic books are now serious literature. No, really. Grown-ups, yeah. Comic, no, no, I'm, I'm, no, you're not listening to me. Comic books are, no, 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 hang on, I'm serious. Here, take this. Yeah. And, and, and suddenly... New York Times bestseller list. Well, so, so fast forward to now. Mm. Is Alan Moore right? Has the superhero movie 
infantilized the audience, dumbed it down to a point where we want everything to be wrapped up in a bow at the end of two hours and the hero always wins and gets the girl and goes off into the sunset. Uh, well, if he's on a horse, it's a Western. If it's a detective movie and it's not a noir, maybe he does get the girl. Yeah. No. So here's here's two things. One, from the movie side of things, no. I disagree. Because superhero movies are just like Westerns and science fiction films and horror movies. It's a genre, right? Mm -hmm. And genres go in and out of vogue. Right. Our friend Kendall Sin has for several years now. <laughs> yes. Because, and, and with, with justifiable reason saying the bubble's going to come and it's going to burst. Because that's the model. Right. This is going on longer than expected, but there will come a point, guys. I, I, if you're a huge superhero fan, film fan, the bubble will burst at some point. Well, and I'm wondering because you have now with the pandemic mm. and with all of these movies getting pushback and pushback and pushback, and we don't know even if the theaters are ever going to be able to open again. And. You know, you have, you know, and a lot of this, you know, not, you know, politics aside, a lot of this is New York and California. It's high population. It's and it's their decisions to not let anything open up. And it's, and the entire, the, 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 the fallout from those decisions as it affects not just movie theaters, but also live theater, is crippling these industries. And well, the question now is, okay, yes, we're going to move these movies, these movies back, and we're going to push these dates back, but are the movie theaters even going to survive long enough to come back for the movies to even screen anywhere? Well, it's a little more complicated than that, because one of the major movie theater chains that has shut down is a British-owned chain. And it was a decision not made on the U.S. level. It was made in the U.K. level. Who have their own set of issues that they're dealing with in terms of shutdowns and things like that. Right. And they're also, terms, yeah, but in terms also of dealing the locals, with a gigantic spike right now. Yeah, but in terms of the local decisions, though, well, sure, the governors sit there and go, no business does, you know, well, five, but you also 10 look at these, capacity. These are, these are major population centers, and so consequently, they're high-risk centers. You get out in the middle of, you know, this is why drive-in theaters have seen a, a, a you know, a a resurgence is because mm -hmm. you can do that. There are no drive-in theaters in, on Manhattan Island. I know, and that's just because there's no place to put it. Yeah. It's not. It's it's a it's a metropolitan city area. You don't have drive-in theaters. The fact that the fact that there are drive-in theaters in the Kansas City metro area is kind of amazing. But when you also consider how much that's a big sprawling thing. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, if you went to the drive-in theaters in Wichita, Kansas, you drove for a while. Mm -hmm. To get to them, so and the fact that they were gone, that most of them had shut down, that this was a, if this was something that we'd managed to maintain, but we didn't think we needed them. Yeah, we had no. So, um, yeah, the industry is going to be. The industry is is going to be dealing with, a lot for a long time, and and as somebody who used to work for a movie theater, um, you know, part of me is going. Don't. Don't die. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, um, quite frankly, 
popcorn should not cost that much. And well, I know how I know how much a thirty-two ounce soda really costs, kids. Patty Jenkins has made her dire predictions. You know that, that this could be a, not necessarily a death blow, but it's going to hurt. And this the the effects on budgets mm-hmm. is kind of where I'm going with this one as well. Because if these businesses are going to survive, right, they're going to have to cut costs, and we're already seeing that with all of the layoffs, all of the people that are now out of work. You know, you've got, what, 28, 30,000 people that have been laid off from Disney. And all of these big, you know, all, all of this stuff is is being hurt by it. But my, my thinking is, you know, because we've had a number of years where everything is the big $200 million, $200 million budget, budget. $300 million budget. Yeah, uh-huh. Maybe, possibly... What if this gives us a chance to hit a reset button and the movie theaters sit there and go, you know, we don't necessarily have to make every single movie for $200 million. We can do a $5 million picture here and a $2 million picture here and a couple of $3 million pictures here and maybe a romantic comedy and, you know, whatever. And maybe go... Not necessarily go back, but look at the model from the 30s and 40s. Because the movie studios were just cranking them out. Mm -hmm. And you'd have 40, 50 films a year. And they were made for modest budgets. And they did fairly well in the box office. They made their money. And okay, fine. And you could do those smaller films Mm -hmm. and let them go in the movie theater for a month or so, month and a half, and now we've got streaming and digital and right. home home theater and all of that, which you didn't have back then. Right, and we would definitely also not want to go back to the studio contract model where basically, hi, you're an actor? You're going to do six films for us this year. Yeah. You don't get to choose what they are. Well, I mean, a high, just, you know, <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. a modified version of right, that. Right. But, but I think there's an opportunity here. Well, maybe. So... Just a couple of things that I think are going to happen here. And this is this is just a prediction based on my years in the book world. Okay. Because back in back in my book selling days, mm. there was this little upstart company called Amazon. Yeah. And they started selling books. And the industry went, oh no. They're going to undersell us. They're going to undercut us. The bookstores are going to go away. It was a real, real fear. And yes, some businesses did go under. Uh, I worked for Borders. Borders went under not because of Amazon, but because the people at top were idiots, <laughs> and they forgot that they, they they forgot they were a bookstore chain. Right. All the people for for decades, Borders had actually been run by booksellers. The people at the top. Had been been a career of working in the book world, and then they started bringing in folks from the shoe sales world, and the clothing sales world. Because of course, well, because you have retail. Because all retail is the same. Leather leather bound books. Yes. I mean, it's the same as selling shoes, uh, right? All all retail is exactly the same. That's right. And um, although I liked my final boss with Borders, uh, which sounds like something of the game, we fought. 
I left. Um, she she was in the clothing business before that. She had no book experience, and she didn't read. And that was that's that was the company at the end. Uh, after I after I left, it just kept getting worse, and then they mm. were out of business. But the thing is, is that the smaller the smaller shops, the indie the indie booksellers, the ones that survived specialized. Yeah. And so you had your mystery bookstores and your science fiction bookstores and your romance bookstores. Used bookstores weren't as impacted as the retail ones. Used bookstores are a different model. But they survived and they flourished after a time because the balance, there was an equilibrium that was... Because there are folks who are always going to want to walk into a store and hold the book in their hand as they mm. browse and have maybe sit down and have a cup of coffee and chat with the owner for a while. There's all... that That's a human thing that we all seem to have. And the idea that books would go away for e-readers was also a big fear. Same right. thing. I remember that. So what's going to happen with movies? This is my prediction. <laughs> is because, because there's a lot of things happening here. We have a bazillion streaming services all producing content. Yep. Some of them have some of the biggest entertainment companies behind them who are dealing with, with the pandemic as everybody else is. But at the same time, they also have a significant amount of reserves. Some of them not as much as they'd like right now, but they right. still have them. Folks, Disney is not going to run out of money. They're not bringing in the amount of money that they want. They're hurting. Yeah, but it's a matter of scale. I mean, the idea that... Well, a six... What was it? The I'm, six... Trillion dollar loss. I'm more concerned something? about. I'm more concerned about AT and T, because AT and AT and yeah, AT and T well, thought they could be Disney and Comcast and Netflix well, because, and all the things at once, and that's not how it works. Well, folks. when they bought when they bought Directv, they were thinking, okay, we have a plan. We were going to do this, and then yeah, the bottom falls out of all of this. Forty five million dollars less than they bought it for. They're trying to sell it. For. Yeah. So they've taken a real big loss for that, but. Yeah. They're also, you know, you're also looking at Crunchyroll that mm. may be in trouble. Rooster Teeth is imploding. Have mm. you seen the latest has been I've going on over there? I've seen a little bit. I haven't paid too much attention. Oh, so Rooster Teeth is, is essentially dead at this mm. point. Um, DC Comics is restructuring and they're trying to figure out how to make that thing profitable. And they... And Perhaps. I don't know that hiring Mark Wade and Max Visaggio is the best way to do that, but we'll see. Well, I'm I'm less concerned about the people as I'm concerned about the model because some of the things that they're doing are some of the things that Alan Moore actually probably would like to see because they're going after that younger market. Well, yeah, and that's kind of one of the things that to loop back around. I'm, let me I'll, I'll get back to my prediction in a second. Okay, but the thing is, is that Alan Moore was talking about the fact that these are things that were aimed at young readers. Yes, that's the model. That's what he grew up with. And one of the things that I think DC is doing, certainly doing a better job than Marvel is right now, is they are recognizing that one of the things you have to do is make sure you have an audience, which means you have to constantly be going after the younger audience. You and I can talk all we want about reading Watchmen when it came out, or V for Vendetta when it came out, or Swamp Thing when it came out, or Crisis on Infinite Earths when it came out. We're gonna die. <laughs> 
And we're not going to hopefully be able to, not soon. But we're not going to be able to buy comics at that point. Yeah, they need the next generation. No, and I get that, and and it does make a certain amount of sense that DC is going to go after the YA market more than anything else. Plus, all of the digital international stuff. Mm-hmm. I I get what they're doing. So we'll see if it works. But anyway, I'll get but it. they're doing that at the peril of the direct market. Direct direct market likely is not going to survive this. The direct market is going to be different. So this is what's going to happen of all of this. It'll be back issues. Well, the thing is, is that all of this always changes. Mm-hmm. Okay. A, a semi-stable since the 80s, the comic industry, and I know that's this has happened quite a bit. But if you consider the model, it hasn't changed. It's had some stuff at the edges, but how long have we had one distributor before suddenly we have more than one distributor? Right. How long has it been, you know, it's, well, it's been since the 80s and we're still talking about Alan Moore. And we're still talking about Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Now, admittedly, Neil Gaiman's Sandman has kept doing things because Neil Gaiman keeps putting out new content. But again, we're talking about these influential series from 40 years ago, mm-hmm. from 30 years ago. That's, they matter, but the industry had sort of this stasis for a while. Yeah. it's And so it's going to change. And because it, it changed before. Also bear in mind that for a really long time, superhero comics in the comic book world were not profitable. They were, then they weren't, mm-hmm. and then they were again. There was this big gap there in the middle where it was romance comics and horror comics and war comics. Superheroes, not so much. So the industry changes. So here's what's going to happen next. Magic prediction powers with the, with the entertainment industry, uh, TV and, and film. Because you have so many different platforms, because the pandemic is going to require a, a, where we spend our money, fewer blockbusters... Mm-hmm. more um, lower budget and of course low budget in Hollywood is smaller budget smaller budget well and more low budget yeah um, the indie film the we've already seen this if you go to Netflix or Amazon Prime or some of these others you can find a ton of indie content because they get it for the cheap mm-hmm a lot of it is bad. People are out there making indie films. Eventually, there'll be a another Blair Witch Project. One of those that just Some, explodes. Something that makes the impact. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or and so you're going to see this stuff again. Well, and I think too, you know, the you're already starting to see it with comics, with so many uh, crowdfunded projects. That are going both Indiegogo and Kickstarter, uh, Indiegogo doing a little bit better, but you, you're starting to see the professionals, people like Scott Snyder, mm-hmm. Sean Gordon Murphy, uh, are are moving away from DC Marvel and they're going to crowdfunded model them, themselves. Mm-hmm. It's not just it's not just people like Ethan or John Malin or anybody that that is in that mm-hmm. group. It's everybody is starting to look at it now. Um, you know, there's there's a book that's uh, being funded right now called The Trap mm-hmm. that's uh, uh, co-written by 
uh, Lance Briggs of the Chicago Bears. Mm. So yeah, it's it's there that model for independent comics is already starting to take hold with the crowdfunded thing, and it may not be exactly the same as what we got when Image first started, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to have an impact. I think it's going to have one of those. It's going to people are noticing because there are people that are making a lot of money in that realm. How long it's going to work, See, I don't that's, know. That's my concern. I have two concerns with that. One is that how long it can be sustained. Right. And that's a concern with any business. It's not just this model. I'm looking at it and going, okay. Yeah, it's anything. It's anything. Because it's not a new thing. This has been, you know, crowdfunding has been going on for a long time. Indie comics have been going on for a long time. I'm concerned about, um, I'm concerned about return on your investment. Mm-hmm. Because I think that if you don't get what you, if you're if if you're paying twenty five bucks for a book, for example, right, you need to be getting a graphic novel, which most of these are. And as long as you can do that, mm-hmm. but if you put out like a twenty two page floppy, and someone's paid twenty five bucks for it, they might do that once. I I think, and I'm the, so so it's a it's a yeah. it's a it's a quality control issue sure. across this. Well, I and think, I think I've I think seen the, the lowest. I think that the lowest page count that I've seen out of any of these books has been forty something pages. I'm just saying that this is something that you need to watch out for because quality yeah. control is going to maintain it. And if you have, you can screw up a number of times. It's like any business. Yeah. You can make you can make growing pain mistakes, but if you can't maintain what you're going to do. And one of the things that concerns me, I see this all the time, on, and it's not just indie comics, but you see something like, well, it made all this money. It's like, okay, wait, well, wait. Money doesn't, profit doesn't equal quality. Sure. And you can, you know, you, you pick a film you didn't like that did well. Mm-hmm. And you can sit there and go, it's a terrible movie. I don't know why. I don't know why Titanic made so much money. It's a crappy movie. It's a crappy movie, guys. It's great effects, but it's a dumb story. Yeah. But it made all the money. Quality and profitability are not the same thing. And what's going to have to happen with anything for sustainability uh, for the crowdfunded comic book world is a sustained level of quality. If they can't do that... It's well, not going to be sustainable. And I think the other thing too is, and I've noticed, I've noticed this just from from peripherally mm. kind of paying attention to all of this, is that they're all talking to each other and they're learning from each other. It's oh like, sure. I, I made this mistake. Don't do it this way. Mm-hmm. Do it this other way. And and you see, you know, uh, for example, Brian Polito, who's mm-hmm. been doing crowdfunded books for a number of years now. I think four or five years. And he's got a machine. He's got a a, a model right. for everything that he's doing. And you know, Ethan's got his plan, and Malin's got his. And yeah, everybody that's been doing these that are now into their second or third or fourth book, they're they're now figuring out their best practices, as you were. Sure. And they're getting them from each other. They're all they're all right. connecting and networking in. And I think there's an opportunity there to do something that has an impact and maybe a positive impact on an industry because if they can get that model sustainable to the point where the retail shops see it as a viable option, 
then that gives the retailers, that gives the direct market another product they can put in their in their stores. I think that's maintainable if you can do it. Mm. And this again comes from the Borders experience. One of my biggest problems with the crowdfunding thing is that a lot of their money is not made from the comics they're selling. It's the additional the crap. Yeah. And this was... I, this is one of the things that helped decline the decline of, of the a lot. There's a reason Barnes and Noble is the only one still standing, really. Um, but really, though, with comics, though, I mean, just comics as an example, you have all of the merchandising. You've got all the action figures and the posters, well, and the sure, t-shirts, but and all of that. but getting the deal that a comic book shop is going to get from, say, the distributor who makes DC Comics T-shirts, yeah, is going to be much more favorable. Because of scale, they're going to be able sure. to get from a single sure. crowdfunded person. So my concern there is when, as Borders was beginning its downward slide, it was, let's have all these additional things. And the first quarter of the store was, you know, sure, you had your bookmarks and your cards and things like that. Right. But there was so much crap that was, I mean, it's not books, music, <coughs> not books, music, video, or coffee, which was right. Borders' model. Right. And... Great. These are all things that you can buy, but they're not your business model. And I think that unfortunately, well, I, I, and and again, I could be completely wrong on this. Um, and for the sake of these creators telling their stories and doing it, because I completely, I have no issues whatsoever with people telling their stories and getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. You know, bu- it's your money. Buy the thing you want to buy. If, right. if this is a creator that you like and they're telling a story that you think is cool, great. But as an industry-changing thing, it's got to be sustainable. Or it, has the, or it has to have the kind of earth-shattering impact, we're back to Alan Moore and Watchmen, right. that you may not, the consequences for you may not be what you hope them to be, or the industry that you may not you just don't know. Well, and I think, you know, you're starting to see, because Dynamite has been dabbling with it a little bit. Boom Studios has started to mm. to play with it a little bit. To and, some backlash for both studios, well, for both places. Well, the, the Boom thing, um, I, think, I think the backlash to Boom is, uh, is a direct consequence of everybody going after the comic skate stuff. But I also think that, you know, because there are certain people who think that they're, they want to be the tastemakers and they want to be the gatekeepers and they want to decide how things are done. And when Boom Studios comes out with Keanu Reeves mm-hmm. doing this book in the middle of a pandemic, I mean, they went after Sean Gordon Murphy for the same thing. Do you really think that the timing is right for that kind of thing? I mean, do you really think you should be doing that? But Con- it's basically trying to hold people back. Well, consist- consistency from any side in this is not something you're going to find. But I Sorry. like I like what Ross Ritchie was talking about when they said this. They said the reason that they're using crowdfunding with Berserker is to get a new audience. Mm. Yes, we're going to have this book available to the direct market. And yes, we're going to have it on Comixology. We're going to have it on digital. But at the very beginning, we want the Keanu Reeves fans to come over here and look and see what this thing is. Mm -hmm. Oh, what is this? What is this thing called a comic book? Oh, I I kind of like this. 
give me more, please. Right. And they're looking at it to generate a new audience, like what you're talking about, right. what so, DC's uh-huh. doing with the younger crowd. And it it's that thinking outside the box that the entire industry is going oh, to have to do. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, just... I'm not saying that the the backlash that anybody who has gotten, any of the companies that have gotten involved with this have gotten has been necessarily fair, but it's going to be there yeah. when you're making this kind of thing. Just like, you know, people, th- you and I talked about this, people went ballistic when DC said, no, no, we're going to distribute our own comics. Mm-hmm. And yet, strangely enough, the sky did not fall. Well, not only that, but... In the aftermath of that decision, you had a number of retailers who were posting photographs right. of the packaging from these mm-hmm. two new distributors and the packaging from Diamond when they finally went back right. to, to distributing. And it's like night and day. Yeah. And Diamond, we're hearing, uh, I was watching uh, uh, one, of the, one of the YouTube channels, I think it was Clownfish. He's got a friend of his that he's connected with on Facebook who posted, he works at Diamond. And said they're probably looking at another round of layoffs at Diamond. I don't think Diamond's going to survive this. Well, it, okay, so you're going to the industry is going to change. The, in the comics industry is going to change. The movie industry is going to change. What it changes into may not be anything that we want it to do, but it's going to change. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that it's been changing. It's been changing in our lifetimes. We are old enough, and God knows we remind you folks enough. We were old enough to see Star Wars in the theater. That's right. And it changed cinema. Yeah. It changed toys. Oh, yeah. Well, it changed everything. It changed because it, it, it created the new special effects movie. Right. You know, that hadn't been, that hadn't been done in a while. That was the 1970s, folks. Yeah. So, 1970s. The changes, changes are coming. Um, I'm pretty sure that there's an 11th Doctor line. Uh, you I'm know, not sure. and uh, you know, the change is coming, and you just have to. You're going to deal with it, and um, it's going to. It's it's change. Change is something that we don't necessarily deal well with, but it's also an opportunity. Yeah. And whether it's uh, self-publishing, or smaller pictures, or a ten-episode adaptation of V for Vendetta, which I done by. I can think of four or five people off the top of my head who've made some really cool stuff over the last decade or so in, in the prestige things. Um, could be some really amazing uh, entertainment and thought-provoking and possibly cause all kinds of problems, just like Alan Moore's Watchmen, yeah. Killing Joke, and all the things that, that he regrets now. What What about Brian De Palma doing a V for Vendetta series? So... Because Jonathan Demi is dead, right? The problem with De Palma is... Mm, I mean, he did The Untouchables. He did The Untouchables, but I'd almost want... I'd almost want someone... And not necessarily them, but... Kind of coming coming in as like the 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 creative team of Westworld because mm. it's such an ambiguous series when it's when it's doing well right and there's the show's done this over time right but there's an ambiguity and a question of who should I be rooting for that you really need to have that sense of unease at times in V for Vendetta where you are looking at the 
you're looking at him and going, yeah, the other guys are pretty terrible, but I don't feel safe with you. <laughs> and and because that's that's what makes the character interesting. One of the things that makes the character interesting. So, um, I think De Palma's visual flair could lend itself really well for that. Right. But I'm not sure that the um, the ability to make this kind of character compelling because in the comic you have to ask yourself why am I rooting for this guy exactly? Mm -hmm. Because his cure might be worse. Because at least there's and this is that scary thought at least there's order. Yeah. At least the trains run on time. <laughs> what happens if suddenly... And, they don't. Yeah, they don't. And, you know, so it's it's a challenging, it's challenging storytelling. Again, Alan Moore, at his height, you know, he's yeah. he was a genius. And he's still a genius. I'm looking forward to the show. And it is him in the trailer, by the way. If, you, if you've seen the he's, trailer... Yeah, he's playing Moon. And uh, he's just... Yeah. You look at him and go... Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's gonna we're gonna leave it there, uh, and uh, and and if anybody has uh, comments or thoughts that you'd like to share, we do that. Uh, Sci-Fi Snob says that he plans to live forever. Um, I wish you which, nothing but the best. Good luck with that. Uh, I don't know that I would want to live forever. Just on the on on general principle. In some on the, in in our latest our later most recent episodes of Zompocalypse now cuz we're looking at Lovecraft Country mm. and immortality in the quest is part of the story. We've had several discussions on no, living forever bad, very bad plan. Very do not bad. do the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I um had uh had every now and again I have these very strange dreams. Mm. about going in, into into realms and realities where I, I'm not me. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, we, we, it's not an immortality type of thing, but it's also one of those things where, like, I don't know exactly who I am, what I'm doing here. Right. And that's bad enough. And when I wake up, you know, there's that disorientation of, okay, right. where, sure. where am I? Where? And I'm thinking... If you were to live a really long time and maybe suddenly forget where you are in your time, you know, you wake up and, oh, I, you know, because dreams can put you in different places. You wake up, it's it's actually really 2138, but you wake up thinking it's 1970. That could be a problem. And the fact that you're living longer than anybody that you know could also be a problem. Yeah, the, the Douglas probably. Adams solution was the best ultimately is that after you spend the first couple of decades laughing at other people's funerals you then travel the universe insulting all of creation one no. at a time no so maybe we'll do a you're little a, bit of that you're a, you're a knee biter dent yeah <laughs> alright that's going to do it for us tonight thanks very much for watching don't forget tomorrow uh, we've got a brand new Salacious Crumbs with Star Wars news we've got uh, the Rancor Pit on Friday and live from the bunker all this week through Thursday at noon. And that will do it. And then Friday, Friday at 7 o'clock Central, begins the Walkin' and Rollin' Costumes Virtual Party, which will be probably on our channel and their channel. We'll have to figure out how to get it to everybody's channel. But that'll be coming up. So mark your calendars for Friday at 7 
and then we'll be doing that for 10 days. And that'll be fun. All right. There you go. Thanks for being here, everybody. Good night. Have a good night, guys. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.